Well, good morning, church. Uh, If you have your Bible, maybe it's already open to Matthew chapter 7, but if not, I invite you to turn it there. My name is Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff. And uh, if you're a family member around here and a regular, uh, you already knew that. But if you're a guest or you're joining us uh, from somewhere else, uh, we really want to welcome you. And we're excited that you've decided to join us for worship this morning. When we talk about worshiping together as a family, as we've already mentioned, uh, that isn't just the singing of God's praise, although we certainly do that on a Sunday morning here at Fullerton Free. But that also includes giving, like Becca already said, or it includes uh, our prayers to God together, that we join in unity to pray. It includes the study of God's word. It includes uh, the opportunity even just to be in community and fellowship, even if that community and fellowship is uh, remotely uh, in this uh, difficult season. But it's nice to have you with us. We're, uh, we're almost finished with our series in the Sermon on the Mount called Forget What You've Heard. And in each week of this series, as we've been working through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, we've seen Jesus sort of uh, recapturing our hearts and our minds and the hearts and minds of the people that he was initially speaking to, his disciples and those on the periphery of the crowd, about sort of recalibrating their minds to understand the way life looks and works in the kingdom of God, which is drastically different than in the kingdom of the flesh or the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of ourself and in our sin. Jesus has recalibrated our thinking on all kinds of things from character to the way we look at one another to our responsibility and our role, the way we worship. Uh, And then most recently, as we were at the end of uh, Matthew chapter six last week, He was talking about the way in which we tend to overvalue things and we become anxious, we become stressed out, we can become preoccupied with worrying about what we're going to eat or what we're going to drink or what we're going to wear. And Jesus is working to go, hey, you don't don't need to worry about stuff. You tend to overvalue stuff, Jesus has said at the end of 6. And now as we get into 7, he shows the other side of a similar coin rather than talking about the way in which we as people or in the kingdom of this world tend to overvalue things or creature comfort. Now in seven, he's going to say, not only do you overvalue stuff, but you tend to undervalue one another. You overvalue stuff and you undervalue one another. Jesus wants to say to us this morning, forget what you've heard. Because in fact, you should undervalue stuff, temporal things that will disappear, that will end up in the dumper graveyard. And you should overvalue your fellow man overvalue your brothers and sisters, other people on this planet. And so Jesus leaning into that here in these first 12 verses is going to talk about a contrast to the way we tend to approach one another. And he says this in the first two verses of Matthew chapter seven. He says, judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Um, Jesus here begins with this idea of judgment. And I want to be really careful to say a couple things as we dive in. I don't have any clever points for you today. There's no alliteration. There's not a one, two, three. We're going to work our way through these verses because sometimes uh, this text, this text in particular, gets used almost like little proverbs. People will go, oh, this thing about pearls and pigs is a little proverb. And this thing about asking and seeking and knocking is a little proverb. And this thing about having a, a, a log in your eye, that's a little proverb. These things are not disjointed. It's not like Jesus is just rambling off different little things that occur to him. It's all seamless and it all stacks up. And it begins with the idea of judging one another. 
It begins with the idea of judgment. And when when we're talking about judgment here, we're not talking about discernment. And I'll get to this in a second. But what he's talking about is a condemnation of our fellow man. That snap judgment that happens where we look at other people and we feel like, even though we are limited in our knowledge, limited in our power, limited in our understanding, as created beings ourselves, we feel like we are fit and capable to look at other people and in a snap or even over a season of time, make a judgment about who they are. Make a judgment about what's going on in their life. Make a judgment about what they think or what they feel or what they care about, what they prioritize. And we sit in a seat of judgment or condemnation. We sit in a seat to shame other people, sometimes to put them down, to elevate ourselves. What Jesus is talking here is not that we shouldn't be discerning. He's not saying that no follower of Jesus should ever serve as a judge in a courtroom, right? He's not saying that we can't exercise judgment, but what he's talking about specifically is this idea of condemnation, of censoriousness, of blame and shame and criticism. And I will say that this is a message we drastically need to hear because we live in a world that is so divided and that is constantly at each other's throats because we are prone to making judgments about other people. People we know and people we don't know based on where they come from, based on how much money they make, based on what color their skin is, based on what language they speak, based on their political party, based on the church they go to, based on the neighborhood they live in. We're making these kinds of judgments all the time. And Jesus says, that's not the way of the kingdom. It's not the way of the kingdom to look at other people and judge them. He says, don't judge others or you yourself will be judged. There is a sense in which that sort of lifestyle, that sort of perception just perpetuates itself. I remember, uh, I remember when my kids were little sitting at Hume Lake. And if you've ever been to Hume Lake, that's a Christian camp up in the Central Valley. And we were in the dining hall one week. And uh, my, my boys, my, little, my, my younger two children weren't even born yet. But my younger two boys were at the table. Uh, my, Jack and Hank were there at the table. And we're sitting there eating. And into the dining hall, which is kind of a buffet-style thing where people get their drinks and they get whatever they're going to eat and they come sit down. Into the dining hall walks a man who, and I I don't have any idea. I didn't know him. I don't have any idea what had happened to him. But a man walks in with an eye patch, right? And I don't know whether he was a war veteran or whether he had uh, an accident. I don't don't actually know what had happened to his eye. But a a man walks in who's got an eye patch. And I can see my son Hank, his, his attention is completely distracted by this man with the eye patch. And so instead of having a conversation at the table, instead of eating his grilled cheese sandwich or whatever he's supposed to be doing, instead, my little guy, Hank is looking over my shoulder. And so I turn to see what he's looking at. And I see there's this man with an eye patch. And as the man walks in, Hank's watching him the whole time. And he watches the man with the eye patch come and sit down at another table. And he starts to eat his own lunch or whatever. And then Hank looks at me and he goes, what do you think that guy's planning, right? And it was interesting because even for like a little kid, he's so used to making a snap judgment that a guy with an eye patch is clearly a villain, right? A guy with an eye patch can't just be eating lunch. He must be plotting some sort of nefarious purpose, right? And that happens from the time we're little. We start looking at other people and making these kinds of judgments. Jesus is saying, don't do it. Part of the reason why Jesus is saying that is because you and I are limited in our perception. We talk about this all the time. But it is not possible for me to look at my sister or to look at my brother, to look at my fellow man and understand concretely who they are at their very core, understand completely who they are becoming, understand completely all the work that God may be doing in their life. I can't possibly know that. So whatever kind of judgment I pass on my fellow man is always incomplete at best and most of the time is only passed for my own advance, right? We tend to judge to set ourselves apart, 
to distance ourselves from other people and to condescend. I wonder what it would look like. Just imagine it for a, just for a moment as we're thinking about what Jesus has said here. Imagine what your life could look like if you never bothered to take the time to let other people know you disapprove of them. What would your day look like? What would your, what would your social media presence be like if you ceased entirely from letting other people know that you find them reprehensible or that you don't like their politics or that you don't like the way they dress or you don't like their music or you don't like the fact that they park their car in front of your house or whatever, right? What would happen in your life? How much space would be freed up in your day if you committed to following what Jesus has said here and never again spent any time letting other people know that you don't like them, that, you, that you're suspicious of them, that you have questions about their character. What if we lived our lives never taking the time to let other people know we disapprove of them? Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. Now again, as I've already said, he's not setting aside the idea of discernment. We know that discernment is necessary. It's important to know the difference between right and wrong, to know the difference between good and evil, right? We absolutely have to have discernment, but the Bible's attention uh, throughout tends to be not on judging people and leaving them where they're at, but working towards reconciliation and restoration. So for instance, when we look at a passage like, um, we look at a passage like Galatians chapter 6, let me just read you the first couple of versions of, of verses of Galatians 6. Here it says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What's the emphasis here? Paul is saying, hey, when you discern that someone else has a problem, then your goal has to be towards restoration and reconciliation. It's not simply enough to identify that someone else has a problem. This is in line with the Bible's teaching on love. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul talks about love that must be pervasive, that we can do all kinds of good deeds, and we can do all kinds of religious practice, but if we don't have love for one another, it's all worthless and empty. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4 says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's the opposite of a judgmental spirit. And Jesus is saying in the kingdom, those who would be kingdom dwellers, we who are kingdom ambassadors, cannot have a spirit of judgment where we're looking at other people and we're pretending or fooling ourselves into believing that we are on the throne to judge them. That we are the ones to be able to divide the rightness or wrongness of their hearts. There is a time and a place for reproof, but that reproof always is leading to correction. It's always about restoration. The Bible would tell us that it's about restoration or it's not appropriate, right? That we're working to restore or reconcile or it has no place. Think about Luke 15. Think about the story of the lost sheep. Think about the story of the lost coin. Think about the story of the prodigal son. What is it that Jesus is doing there? He's painting a picture for us of the heart of God that never dismisses a lost person or a person who's wayward or wandering and simply saying they're a lost cause or they're too far gone or they're, they're not worth the effort. No, the master is always seeking. The father is always waiting for the return and reconciliation. 
for that, for that restoration. It says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. What does he mean, that you be not judged? Well, when we judge other people, the automatic response to criticism is judgment in return, right? Defensiveness, division, frustration, and faction. Our judging is an outward sign of an inward misunderstanding of our own position. Here, here, here's what I mean by that. When I judge other people and when we're tempted to judge other people, what we're assuming is, is that we have all the data, that we're capable of seeing someone to the core. I'll tell you, point blank, I trust Jesus to chase the money changers out of the temple. I trust Jesus' perception and his knowledge of men and women. I trust his ability to chase money changers out of the temple. I do not trust my own judgment to do the same thing. I don't trust my own ability to, to, to determine What's going on at the very core of someone or when, when they are worthy of condemnation? God is the only one who's capable of that. So he says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This thing perpetuates itself. Then look at what he says next in three through five. He says, why do you, seek the spe- why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, Jesus sort of masterfully here weaves in some illustrations. I like, I like using illustrations. I'm not going to add a bunch of my own this morning because Jesus has already done all that illustrative work here. But Jesus gives this illustration of being able to notice and spot a speck in someone else's eye, some problem that someone else has that's relatively minuscule. And he says, why is it that you're preoccupied with this minuscule, minuscule issue in the life of someone else when you have this log in your own eye or this plank in your own eye? And, and I imagine that as Jesus sort of lays out this picture, it's kind of a funny picture. It's a funny picture of a person who's got a log in their eye or a plank in their eye trying to point out a speck in someone else's. But what Jesus is emphasizing here is not funny at all. He uses humor to try and draw our awareness or heighten our awareness But what he's emphasizing here is very serious. That's important to understand that when he paints this picture of the log in one eye and the speck in the other, what he isn't saying is, don't judge people in areas of life that you yourself are guilty in, right? I've heard this text taught that way. That you need to judge people with regard to things that you yourself are not wrestling, right? If you've got particular sin issues or particular bad habits or particular areas of weakness, that that's the log in your own eye, that particular weakness. And and until you've got your own weakness under control, you shouldn't judge other people. Well, that would be in contradiction with what he's already said. He's not saying there is a time and, and place for you to judge other people. And it's just if it's in the right category. He's also not saying here, um, don't judge in areas w- where, uh, where you've got to get your life in order first. He's not saying there's a point we can work towards in which it will be okay to begin to condemn our brothers. Jesus is confident in this text when he uses this illustration that the people he's talking to, and that would include us, have a log in our eye because the log is representative of a judgmental spirit, Right? The log itself is representative of a judgmental spirit. So watch the way these things stack up. He says, don't judge one another. When you start to judge other people, you've undervalued your fellow man. You're pretending like you've got the ability to slice and dice their life in ways that you're not capable of. But more than that, your judgmental spirit actually makes it impossible for you to provide assistance to them. You can't help them with the minuscule things that are happening in their life because you're coming at them with a spirit of condemnation, with a spirit of shame, with a spirit of judgment. Christ here is confident about the plank because the plank is a judgmental heart. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. 
Romans 2.1 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? What Paul is saying there in Romans is that there is a judge. There is one whose understanding is perfect, whose assessments of other people is perfect. And it's God. And when we put ourselves in his position, we end up with that judgmental attitude, that spirit of condemnation and shame and criticism. We end up with this log that actually precludes us from being able to assist other people. We, in essence, then become people who are saying, well, this this other person has done something wrong. But in our finger pointing and in our blame, by pointing at the little thing that someone else has done, our entire character becomes wrong in that process. Do you see it? While pointing out the error of someone else that might be minuscule, our entire perception of the other person becomes distorted. If Christ does not condemn, how can we? When the plank is removed, he says, look at this in in verses 4 and 5. Do you presume, this is back, excuse me, back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, verse 4. Matthew 7, 4 says, Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So follow this. Once you've removed your judgmental spirit, the log that's in your eye, which is a criticism and a condemnation of other people, a, a perception of yourself that says you're fit and capable to judge others, once you've removed that judgmental spirit, then look at what happens. All of a sudden, you've got this humble solidarity with your fellow man. We talk about that as one of the vision pillars of our church. A recognition that all of us are broken, that all of us are flawed, that all of us are sinners, that on our best day, we're just doing our best, that we're all the same in that. Once I've removed the judgmental, condemning, censorious spirit out of my eye, right? Once I'm not looking with that kind of vision, then what do I see? I see my fellow men who are all just as wrecked as me. And once that's then removed, guess what I'm capable of? I'm actually capable of helping my fellow man. I'm actually capable of walking alongside them and going, well, we're, we're both broken. Here's how I've dealt with that. Here's how I'm grappling with that. Here's how I'm working to take the specks out of my eye. Then all of a sudden in that humble solidarity, there's actually the ability to assist our fellow man in removing the speck. But we cannot do it as long as there's a spirit of judgmentalism an arrogance and a condemnation. He says, if you've got that plank in your eye, you're never going to be able to help the other person. And then he says this thing in verse 6, again, which gets quoted out of context all the time. He says this in verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Um, I've heard this, this verse taught a lot of different ways. I've heard this verse taught as, a, uh, as an admonition that we shouldn't waste our time sharing spiritual things with people who don't deserve it. That we shouldn't waste our time trying to share Jesus with people who are bitter or mean-spirited or have, you know, walked away from the church or whatever. There's a point where you shake the dust off your feet and you ignore them, right? Or you let them stew in the, you know, the pot that they've boiled or lie in the bed they've made. Listen, this isn't saying that, that there's a point at which you give up on other people. When it says don't, don't give your pearls to swine or your holy things to dogs, it, it isn't saying that there's a point at which we look at other people and decide that they're dogs or pigs. 
Because that would be in the very contradiction to the things Jesus has just said. So again, if this isn't a standalone proverb, if the whole thing stacks up, he's just said, remove the judgmental spirit from your own perception. Remove that heart of judgmentalism and condemnation from your own spirit. And then you'll be able to see how to help people. And once you're able to see how to help people, you'll actually begin to understand what they truly need. Jesus isn't saying, hey, don't give pigs and dogs what is holy because he wants you to withhold your holy things and keep them to yourself. Right? That would actually be counter to the very incarnation. So what are, what are we celebrating in the season of Advent? In the season of Advent, we are essentially, if that's the way you're going to interpret this text, right, that you can't give pearls to pigs. In the incarnation, which we celebrate in Christmas, what we are suggesting is God's greatest contradiction to his own teaching, if that's what this means. Because when the Son of God comes to earth to rescue fallen man from sin and death, what is that if not offering pearls to pigs? That isn't what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying we don't offer something beautiful and brilliant to people who don't deserve it because Jesus gave himself beautiful and brilliant to those, me and you, who don't deserve it. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is pigs don't need pearls. Pigs don't want pearls. Dogs don't want holy things. No candelabras. You know what pigs want? Corn. And when you've removed the the judgmental eye, when you've removed that spirit of condemnation, You now have the ability to see your fellow man broken, right? Fallen, just like you. And begin to assess, what did these people need? And I'll tell you many times, what they need is love. What they need is is a heart of compassion, kindness, generosity, a listening ear. Someone that will open up and pay attention to what their actual needs are. Part of the, the reason why we're serving the community in this season the way we are, whether that's working with local school districts or working with the city or working with our neighbors, trying to give people food, trying to make sure people have shelter, buying sleeping bags or doing whatever we can do to bless the people that we can, is that not everybody is ready to hear a four-point gospel presentation. You know what I'm talking about? Not everybody's ready for the four, four spiritual laws gospel track. Some people are. But if I'm judging them from a distance without actually paying attention to who they are, my temptation is to try and force on them things they don't want and can't possibly perceive. So as a follower of Jesus, when I've removed the judgmental spirit, then I actually start to look at my fellow man and go, what do they need? Maybe what they need right now is is not an altar call. Maybe what they need is a sandwich. And so what I give to them is the thing they're hungry for. But if I continue to try and force myself, if I continue to try and force on them the thing I need in my judgmental spirit, they will continue to turn and attack me, right? They will continue. Why why does a dog attack you? Well, it's because you're trying to give it a candelabra or some kind of holy relic as opposed to giving it a bone. You give a dog a bone, it's not going to bite you. Jesus says, if you offer pearls to pigs or you give dogs what is holy, they will trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Why? Because they, they don't understand it and they don't want it. It becomes for us a call to give what people need. Rather than forcing that which cannot or will not be accepted, we know our audience and we give them something they can sink their teeth into. We give them something they can sink their teeth into rather than us. It's, he's not here talking about a waste of pearls, but a lack of helpfulness. He's not here saying, don't waste your pearls. He's saying, be helpful. Think about, um, think about what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses, um, let's look at 3 and 4. 
says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What's that verse saying? It's saying that God blesses us, that he comforts us, that he loves us, even though we're broken, even though we're rotten, even though we're arrogant and prideful and stingy and greedy and perverse. He comforts us and loves us in the midst of our brokenness, not just so that we can collect and hold on to all of that blessing, but that so we in turn can become a conduit for blessing in the lives of other people, not a receptacle for blessing, but a conduit for blessing in the lives of others. What is that? Well, it's paying attention to those around us and what they need. Jesus says, don't judge. When you judge, you have this, uh, this thing that's obscuring your view of your fellow man, and it's causing you to give them things that they actually don't want and can't receive. But once you remove that plank, once you remove that judgmental spirit, when you recognize that God is the only true judge, then you see your fellow man in solidarity and brokenness, and you start to get a sense of the sandwich they might actually need. The things they might actually need. And then, and then the next part follows right in line. So watch the way this stacks up. He says, don't give them holy things. That's not something they want. Then he says this in verse seven. So how how do we figure out how to help people love God more? If the answer is, well, they, they don't want your relics and they don't want your pearls. They're not prepared for it. They can't handle it. How do we figure out how to help them see and love God more? How do we help people migrate to the kingdom of God? Well, he gives us a strategy here. And this all flows. This isn't a separate parable. It's not a separate proverb. This all flows in the succession of Jesus' thinking here about judgmentalism. He says this in verse 7. Ask. Ask and seek and knock, right? Verse 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. It's funny. Uh, he's going to talk in just a second about asking God for things. He's going to, well, we'll get there in just a minute, but think about the logic of his, uh, the flow of his thinking. The answer, or the question that obviously comes up in my mind when I'm reading it, if I go, okay, well, I don't want to give to other people. Uh, I don't want to give them something they, they can't receive or don't need that they don't know how to process. So how do I help them love God more? And it's almost like Jesus hears my question. What do I do then? How do I figure out the needs of my fellow man? And Jesus goes, oh, I'm glad you ask. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. Versus what? Well, the opposite of asking and seeking and knocking, right? The opposite of those would be demanding or ignoring the needs of other people or forcing ourselves upon them. I would say that what Jesus is addressing here first is not our approach to the Father, although he'll get there. I think first he's just talking about a simple way we approach everybody. Ask, seek, and knock. You want to know what your, what your co-workers need? You want to know what your neighbors need? You want to know how to bless and serve and love the people in this city, the people in your family, the people that maybe you're distanced from because of a judgmental spirit in the past? You want to know how to seek restoration and reconciliation? Ask them. Enter into a dialogue with them. Have a conversation with them. Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock. I will say, the request is powerful. The request is powerful. It begins a dialogue It involves listening. It communicates worth. When we go to our fellow man, even in the midst of their brokenness, and instead of a judgmental spirit, we go to them and we say, how are you? Who are you? What's going on with you? What's your your needs? Where are you at? How can I come alongside you? When we ask and we seek the needs and we knock without forcing ourselves in, 
People respond. I mean, the, the power of that sort of request is, is, is a big deal. We know it. It's why we dodge those people in stores. I was standing in line at, uh, I was standing in line at Target trying to buy a Wi-Fi router on Friday. And this woman comes up to me while I'm standing in line. Of course, the line is long and we're all six feet apart and we're all masked up. I'm in this line waiting to buy a Wi-Fi router. And there's a lady that comes up to me and she goes, hey, can I talk to you about, uh, about your internet speeds at home? And here's the thing. I don't really want to talk about my internet speeds, right? Because I'm happy with my internet speed. I don't want to spend any more money. But I'm standing in a line that's like four people deep. I'm six feet out. There's people in line behind me. I can't leave. I'm, st- I'm trapped in the line, right? I'm trapped in the line. And this young woman says, hey, can we talk about your internet speeds? And my only option at that point is to say, get away from me. I don't want to talk to you about internet speeds. Or to go, yeah, I'm not going anywhere for a while, it looks like. So let's talk about my internet speeds. And so we did. We talked about internet speeds. Turns out AT&T has a great deal. I don't want to pitch it to you right now. But what did that young woman do? Did she force herself upon me? I mean, she, okay, I was a little trapped. That's, that's true. But she asked the question. Asking the question provokes a response. It implies a listening ear, right? It shows worth and value. She says, hey, tell me about what's going on with your internet speeds, whatever. We as Christians know that this works. We know that beginning a dialogue with people is effective. And by the way, for what it's worth, it is certainly the same tactic that God uses with us. That ask, seek, knock thing is exactly what God does with us. I mean, it probably pops into your head if you've been in the church for a little while. But when we look at a passage like, um, when we look at a passage like Revelation 3.20... This is Jesus speaking. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's talking to the church of Laodicea. And he says, there is correction and reproof coming. Don't don't respond poorly to that. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. What's Jesus' approach? Is Jesus' approach to knock the door down? Is Jesus' approach just to condemn the church at Laodicea and say, well, you know, they're rotten and they've always been rotten and they've got all kinds of problems and I'm just going to focus on another group of people. No, what is Jesus' approach? Well, his approach is to go, hey, are you, are you interested? Are you interested in this? Where are you at? What's going on? I'm at the door. I'm right here, Jesus says. If you'll open the door and let me in, I'll come in and, and we will have a relationship with each other. We'll eat together and you with me, Right? That's all Jesus is suggesting here is that we take the same approach with one another. That that rather than forcing things upon people that they don't want or can't comprehend, that instead we ask them what they do need. That we engage in relationship, in dialogue with people, that we engage with them, right? Jesus does the same thing. I was also thinking about his, uh, his approach to Cain. Remember that in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter four. Now we're gonna study this in uh, next year. We'll be in Genesis. But in Genesis chapter four, remember when God comes to Cain, when Cain has all this jealousy and all this ugliness kind of stirring in him about his brother Abel? God comes to Cain in, in Genesis four, six. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? What's he doing? Well, he's asking some questions. Does God already know the answer to these questions, by the way? Sure he does, because God, unlike Darren, is a perfect judge. So God already knows the answers to the questions, and he's still asking. He says, why are you so angry, and why has your face fallen? He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. What, what's, what's God doing with Cain here? 
Same thing we see him do time and time again. We see him ask and seek and knock. God doesn't chase us down and force himself upon us. God doesn't, uh, doesn't force us all to be religious robots or automatons. Jesus extends by his grace resurrection life. In the incarnation, he comes, he dies in our place. He takes our sin upon himself. He rises from the dead. So not only pays the penalty for our sin, but proves that resurrection life is possible. And then by his grace, he extends that resurrection life to us. He doesn't force it on us. He doesn't shove it down our throats. Do we need it? Absolutely. Are we desperate for it? Absolutely. Will we die without it? Absolutely. And he offers it still. He offers it. And there are many, many, more than those who've accepted it, there are those who reject it. It's only rejectable because he offers it. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 7. Don't judge lest you be judged. You end up with this judgmental perception that makes it impossible for you to help other people. Instead, recognize that, that what they need is what's important. What they actually want, what they can receive is important. And the only way you're going to know that is to ask, seek, and knock. To ask, seek, and knock. It's the same tactic that God uses. It's interesting to think there are lots of churches that are sort of organized around the idea of being... Um, being seeker sensitive. And what they mean by that is that we, they want to be a church where, where people who are searching for God can feel comfortable and find themselves at home. Can I tell you, biblically, I, I, don't, I don't know that a church is supposed to be uh, shaping itself around uh, opening itself up to those who are seeking. I think when we look at the way Jesus describes this in Matthew 7, it sounds more to me like kingdom dwellers, the ambassadors, are meant to be the seekers. That we are the seekers. We are the ones who are seeking opportunity to provide truth and life and grace and love. The listening ear, paying attention. Back to Matthew chapter 7. Not only does he say that we should ask, seek, and knock those around us. Verse 7 says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks uh, finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. And then he pivots here in verses 9 through 11. He says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? To be totally honest with you, I've literally done that, right? My kids have asked for stuff and I give them the opposite thing. It's, it's not good, but I'm just, I'm just being honest with you here. He says, which one of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? I think many of you probably have kids who would prefer the snake to the fish, right? But follow what Jesus is saying. That when you ask and when you seek and when you knock, you receive the thing you're after. He says this in verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So Jesus here in Matthew chapter 7 isn't just saying that our approach to our fellow man should not be judgment, but rather should be engagement, should be a listening ear, should be relational, right? He's not just saying that our approach to our fellow man should be asked, seek, and knock. He also says, approach God on your neighbor's behalf and ask, seek, and knock. Approach God on your neighbor's behalf. What do your neighbors need? What do your coworkers need? What are the ways in which there's a speck in their eye that they're having a hard time removing? Not that you're judging them, but that you're walking alongside them in humble solidarity and can recognize they have needs. Some of those needs you and I are not going to be able to meet. It's not going to be as easy as a sandwich. It's not going to be as easy as helping somebody pay their rent. It's not going to be as easy as washing the dishes or mowing the lawn. Sometimes there are greater needs, spiritual needs, that you and I as temporal beings are not going to be able to solve. So with our neighbors, the first strategy here is talk to our neighbors and engage with them so that we have a sense of what their needs are. But in those places, we also want to be turning to our Heavenly Father who has all knowledge and all power and perfect judgment. 
and asking and seeking and knocking before him on our neighbor's behalf. And what Jesus promises here is that when we turn to our heavenly father who is good and we ask and seek and knock on our neighbor's behalf, he will hear us and give them good gifts. Give them good gifts. You may ask, well, what are the good gifts? I'm glad you asked. Let's look at verse 12. As Jesus finishes this section, he says in verse 12, first, the first word is so, right? So, so whatever you wish, right? So there's a, there's a flow of thought here, right? He says, instead of a judgmental attitude where you're condemning other people and you're criticizing them and you're lifting yourself up as one who, who you perceive as fit to judge others, instead, take that log out of your eye and then you'll be able to see clearly to walk by your brothers and sisters to actually assist them. You don't give them things they can't receive or aren't interested in. You actually ask and seek and knock to know what their needs are. Then you provide what you can. You also turn to your heavenly father on their behalf and God will give them good gifts. So here's how that works. Jesus says, verse 12, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Here's the first thing I want you to see. The way in which our Heavenly Father gives good gifts to the world is by giving them us. We're the good gifts. We are the good gifts. Asking and seeking and knocking and coming to our fellow man, not with a judgmental spirit, not with shame, not with criticism, but with humble solidarity, with radiant peace, with revolutionary kindness right? With unforced appeal. We come, we are God's good gifts to the world. We are his ambassadors. We are the way in which in our love, we are making manifest a a true revelation of Christ. But I want you to note here that this verse gets taken out of context and kind of juxtaposed. This verse 12, some people call it the golden rule. It says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. A lot of times the way this gets flipped, it gets flipped a couple of different ways. One of the ways it gets flipped is that people use it uh, to, to sort of promote their own re- reception, right? So they'll go, hey, you're, the Bible says you're supposed to treat me the way you want to be treated, right? You've heard that probably before. And we use it to try and garner some sort of something for ourselves. That's not what Jesus is saying. The other way this gets used is a lot of times it gets used in the negative, which we find in other sort of uh, religious writings. In other religious writings, it gets flipped. I think even in Buddhism, it gets flipped and it's the negative. It says, don't do anything to other people that you wouldn't want them to do to you, right? And, and what that's saying is withhold, withhold, withhold. Like don't, don't be mean to other people. Don't be cruel to them. That's not what Jesus, I mean, he would say, don't be cruel and mean to other people. But Jesus is taking an active step. I want you to see that there's an action here. What he says is, What are the things that you desire? What are the attitudes and perceptions with which you wish wish others would perceive you and approach you? What is the good that you wish others would do to you? Don't wait for them to do it. You do it first. What's the good that you wish you could receive? Go be that good. What's the hope and the peace and the joy? What's the compassion? What's the listening ear? What's the physical presence What's the brotherhood, the solidarity, the kindness, the peace? What is that that you wish others would be for you? Jesus says, don't wait. He's not saying, hey, don't be mean to other people because you don't want them to be mean to you. He's saying, we all understand what it means to be the recipients of love and joy and peace. So go and be deliverers of love and joy and peace. Because we are the way in which our heavenly father gives good gifts to his children. It's possible for us to treat others this way because we believe God is in control. I can 
listen and love and serve my neighbor. I can beseech God on my neighbor's behalf without feeling like I've got to put my thumb on them or place a label on them or divide from them or judge or criticize or condemn or shame them. Because I can trust all of that work to God whose judgment is pure. For me, regular human being with with limited perception, my responsibility is to engage with people, to ask and seek and knock, to come alongside them so that like them, we can pull the specks out of our eyes together and I can represent the love and grace and peace of God as his good gifts to the world. Jesus says, don't judge. Don't judge. You overvalue stuff, he says, and you way undervalue people. Let's turn those around. Can you imagine what this church would be like? Can you imagine what this city, what would happen in this city if our church became people who never bothered to take the time to tell others how much we disapprove of them or how how much we find their, their character or attitude or positions or approach reprehensible? What if we just became people who carry the love of Christ as good gifts of God the Father to his creation? Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us a a clear awareness of the ways and the places in which we are condemning, the ways in which we're overly critical, the ways in which we are shaming others, the ways in which we blame them, to elevate ourselves, to create separation, to give ourselves a a sense of um, self-satisfaction by stepping on the backs of others. I pray, God, that you would give us clarity to hear Jesus' voice this morning when he says there's another way. There's a way to ask and seek and knock both your neighbor and your heavenly father who will respond to engage with others and not to give them things they don't want or or can't understand, but rather to engage with them by seeing them as they are, seeing their actual needs and coming to serve. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came. We celebrate it in, in Advent and in the incarnation that you came to earth to rescue us even though we didn't deserve it, that instead of shaming us and condemning us, you came to love us and to rescue us and to call us your own. Help us to have that same heart towards our fellow man. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.